0: Over the week or so that Tabitha and I were in Mexico, as I said this morning, the thing that probably captivated us more than anything else about the landscape we were looking at was the sea, the waves. Now, I've spent some time, we've gone down to Florida in the past, as you know, and seen the Gulf of Mexico and generally fairly, fairly calm the kind you can go swimming with in your kids with your kids and not worry that they're going to be sucked out to sea. I'm familiar with the waves of a lake, like probably all of us are. Again, generally speaking, fairly gentle kind of surf. The Pacific Ocean in Los Cabos is anything but gentle. We were blown away as, as we stood and watched, actually, the place where we stayed at forbade us from swimming they said you cannot swim out here the riptide is so bad there are rocks all over there was no swimming um, on that beach and even as we were walking and you know, we kind of dipping our feet in the water walking the these waves would come crashing up the beach almost unexpectedly and it would go up to our waves and we would feel that riptide I mean we would feel ourselves being being pulled out And as we watched the waves just crash onto these these rocks so dramatically, making so much noise, surf just being sprayed up, I don't know, 10, 15 feet in the air off these rocks, it was just an incredible sight. And I was just blown away again by the power of the ocean, the power of the sea, the power of that ton, those tons of water dumping themselves on the beach. I was directed, and, and as I began to think about the metaphors that Scripture uses, I realized that Scripture almost never speaks positively of the sea. Now, we think of a positive metaphor involving water spiritually, and it's of a river, our peace is like a river, Scripture says. We sing, like a river glorious, is God's perfect peace. We think one day of the new city of Jerusalem in which that river of life, that pure river of water, just like crystal, is going to flow in that city. The river is a picture of God and of his blessings. But the sea? No. In Isaiah chapter 57 You remember that picture, the wicked are like the troubled sea that cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. That is not a positive picture. The sea is presented as a very damaging thing. You think elsewhere in scripture about the sea and the noise that it makes. The sea roars, if you will. In fact, in Psalms, the picture, as I went back and, and reacquainted myself, was the picture of God ruling over the seas. God walks on the seas. And again, it's, it's alluding to this force, the power of the seas. But God is so powerful, he was more powerful than the reality of the sea. That the Israelites would have known how powerful that troubled sea is. In fact, I was reminded of something that I preached on not terribly long ago the very unique perspective that in Revelation, Scripture tells us that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more sea. What an amazing thing! God created a sea in the beginning. We know that he divided the waters from one another. He divided the sea from the dry land and all the animals that were coming and proliferating in the waters. That was part of God's original design. And yet one day in a new heaven and earth, there will be no more sea. And you think, why? Why is there going to be no more Pacific Ocean? No Atlantic Ocean? Why is there going to be no sea in this new heaven and earth? And I I think the picture is just going back to everything that scripture has described the sea as being. It is chaos. It is noise. It is restlessness. It is trouble and distress and difficulty. And there's no place for that in a new heaven, and a new earth. I was thinking about this. Can you even begin to number... The millions, I don't think I'm wrong, the millions of people whose lives the sea has claimed. When one day the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised, how many of them will come from the sea? When you realize that on the Titanic, 1,500 souls the sea claimed in one evening. In World War II, we read of a German boat that went down in the sea that dwarfed the Titanic. About 9,000 people They estimate 9,000 died uh, at the hands of the Soviet army. When you think of the catastrophes even to this day that take place on the high seas, I don't think you could even hazard a guess of the number of lives that troubled, restless sea with all its unbridled force has claimed. Is it any doubt, is there any wonder that scripture presents the sea that was the source of so much fear and so much worry and dread among the people who had no idea how to tame its power that there would be a recognition that that looks nothing like the life of one who is walking with God. So it was no no, um, difficult connection for me to make to come here to the book of James, to realize another picture of this restless, troubled sea that God says this is not to be the life of a Christian. Look with me in James chapter 1. If any of you, verse 5 A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Tonight I want to speak on the subject waves and waverers. Waves and waverers. And I want to hold the mirror up to all of us tonight, myself included. And I want to hold that mirror up to our lives to look and say, does our life look like the Pacific Ocean? the waves that are driven with the sea and tossed? And if so, what does God have us to respond with? How do we avoid a life that looks like waves and wavers? The first thing that we're going to look at here is simply just a natural phenomenon. I want us to dive into this simile a little bit that James has for us by the direction of the Holy Spirit. This person who wavers, he said, is like a wave of the sea, and he says, this wave is driven with the wind and tossed. Now, notice something just briefly, just about the natural phenomena of of a wave. Do you know that a wave actually does not involve the movement of water? Not in any real significant sense. A wave is the movement of energy, not of water. Now, sometimes we associate this with the movement of water because we stand by the shore (coughs) and we see the waves crashing up on shore and then going back out to sea. But in fact, while the, mo- wave, the, the water is moving there, that's only because it is collapsed, it is tossed on to the shore. <coughs> Excuse me. In reality, if you were to get beyond the surf, the water is hardly moving at all. The water is just moving in very small circles. It is the energy that is moving through the wave, And it is simply carrying on from water here to water there to water there to water there until it meets the shore. In fact, if you have ever been out in the ocean or if you've ever been out in a lake away from, again, away from the surf tossing into the shore, do you notice what you do in the motion of the water? Are you carried forward? You simply bob up and down. And that's exactly because that's what the water's doing. It's just bobbing up and down with the motion of the energy. Now what happens, the reason a wave, at least many waves, the waves we think of, wind waves, are created is because the wind creates friction against the top of the water. And the water takes that friction and the energy is transferred through the water in the direction of the wind. So if you think about how this just works at a very physical basic level, You see this wave, and James says this is a wave of the sea. It has something to do with the very nature, the character of the water. A wave, simply put, has no shape and it has no stability. When he says this is a wave of the sea, this is true of water. Now, I have here a water bottle. The water that is in it has conformed perfectly to the shape of the bottle. When I manipulate the shape of the bottle, the water changes to that shape. The water has no shape in and of itself. It has no stability. It is only responsive to what is the external force upon it. The same is true in the movement of water. When water is high, it will flow to wherever gravity takes it. If I go like this, water goes down the water bottle consistent with gravity or simply sits. If Wherever gravity is pulling it, wherever a force is pulling it, that's where water will be. And this is the very essence of what he's getting at here. A wave of the sea, notice, is driven with the wind and tossed. It is driven, he says, and it is tossed. That is to say, in one sense, it is the character of water because it has no shape and no stability. It is simply controlled by something else. It is driven, so that's its direction. If the wind comes from the east, the water will move west. And if the wind comes from the west, the water will move east. The direction is entirely controlled by other forces. But not only that, You see, it is also tossed. That is to say, the ultimate disposition of the wave, its direction and its disposition, it is simply controlled by external forces. Now, if you think about this in terms of other things that we associate with the wind, think, for example, of a palm tree. Maybe you saw those dramatic images of the hurricane that recently ripped through, and you can imagine a palm tree right in a hurricane you see that palm tree bending, 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 but not breaking. Ultimately, you will come back up to its position, of course, unless the force of the wind is so far that it breaks. So you have the water that follows wherever the wind will take it. You have a palm tree that bends with the direction, but ultimately will snap back to center, and then you have a rock. If you think of a craggy uh, a formation, a cliff of some kind, a, a settled mass of granite, it's, it simply does not move at all, it shifts nothing with the wave. It is completely stable. God is, is holding out for us something here about the instability of water, and then notice also then, if there's the character of water that it is completely unstable, it has no shape, if it, that means the control of water is that it's entirely externally directed, that means, notice what he says, it is a wave of the sea driven with the wind. It is entirely controlled by its circumstances. Water is entirely controlled by its circumstances. We would say this. A water will go wherever, a wave, I should say, will go wherever its circumstances direct. It is controlled by the tides. It is controlled by the wind. It is controlled by the shoreline. It is controlled by gravity. And wherever those forces direct, that is where water will go. Now, if you get that, you'll get the picture Not only do we have a natural phenomenon here, we have a spiritual pathology, a spiritual pathology. James says that wave is a picture of a certain kind of spiritual person. Now, uh, my mind uh, went back, perhaps yours did as well, to the story of, of Reuben in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Jacob was giving the blessing to his people, to his children, in Genesis chapter 49? And he says of Reuben, he says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. You are my firstborn. But what did he say of Reuben? Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Reuben was controlled by his circumstances. And what is the example that Jacob gave? He says, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou at, he went up to my couch. What is this? It was Reuben being having an immoral relationship with his father's concubine. And what, what he seems to be saying here is, Reuben, in your lust, in your sensual desire, you were controlled entirely by it. And therefore, In that instability, you're just like water. You'll go wherever your desires take you. And isn't that so true of so many human beings and even ourselves in our own ways? So what is he saying here about the character of this person who is like the wave? Notice what he says. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. So he says his character is to be wavering. Now, what does he mean by wavering? You may see this word translated doubting, but it's actually interesting. This same word is actually used only one chapter later in chapter two. Will you look over with me to James chapter two? I think it'll give us just a little perspective on what really the idea that he's communicating here is. Look at verse four of chapter two. And I want you to think about Which word in English here might be the same Greek word that is translated wavering in chapter 1 and verse number 6? Let's read it. Verse 4 says, Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Okay, let me take a quiz here, a little pop quiz. If you think that the same word for wavering in chapter 1 in verse 6, is translated partial, partial. Are you not then partial in yourselves? Raise your hand. I think that's it. Okay. What about do you, if you think that word is judges? Judges. How many of you think judges would be the right word? Okay. How many of you think evil thoughts? Evil thoughts is the right word that is used for wavering. So How many of you say, I haven't the foggiest clue and I'm not going to commit myself? Okay, all right. That's you. Okay, good. Good. At least you're honest. Okay. The actual answer is partial. And the word partial there has the idea of being of making distinctions of discriminating, what's going on in chapter two? Someone walks into church and people are trying to distinguish whether that person's wealthy or poor. And the poor, you sit down and you're a footstool. And you're wealthy and you come and you get the favored seat. And he says, aren't you being discriminators? Aren't you differentiating? Aren't you distinguishing among people? And you're becoming judges? And you say, what what does that have to do with wavering? with doubting. It's the idea of having two thoughts. It's the idea of having your mind making divisions, of being divided. This idea of wavering or doubting is vacillating between two thoughts, is differentiating, is distinguishing between a thought that is right and a thought that is wrong, a thought of faith and a thought of doubt. It is not to be unified in your mind, convinced in your mind. It is to be waffling flip-flopping back and forth. Now, isn't it interesting throughout Scripture how often God identifies this problem in his people? You remember Elijah at the great challenge between Baal and Jehovah. Do you remember what he said in 1 Kings 18? Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Make up your mind. Joshua said the same thing. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Make up your mind. And Jesus himself communicated the same idea when he said, no man can serve two masters, for he's either going to love the one and, 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 and turn away from the other, or he's going to cleave to the one and he's going to forsake the other. You cannot serve two masters. In the same way, James is saying here, a double-minded man, a man who is wavering in his thinking, should not expect that he's going to receive anything from the Lord. And not only that, he is like a wave that is driven and tossed. Now, why does that make sense? Well, it makes sense because... In the same way that a wave is utterly controlled by its circumstances, what he is saying is a man who isn't settled in his thinking is going to be completely controlled by his or her circumstances. And and how much is this true in our lives? You know, let let me explain it to you this way. If you have children or you had children... Do you notice something about children you can almost always tell their mood based on their circumstances? Did you not get enough sleep last night? Well, we better watch out. You're gonna be grumpy this morning. Are you hungry? Well, you're gonna be grumpy. You take a little baby. They are entirely controlled by circumstances, almost entirely. Are, is the diaper stinky? Okay, they're gonna be crabby. And you can identify their mood and you can say, well, something's wrong. Maybe it's the ear. Maybe she has an ear infection. Maybe he's got a sore throat. Maybe he just is hungry. Maybe he didn't sleep well. Maybe he's colicky. What, whatever it is, the baby is controlled by the circumstances. And I've seen this. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I've seen it with my own children, particularly with this truth. Living in a Minnesota winter is so clarifying. And it's clarifying on this. Tabitha and I have seen in our own children the difference, the maturity level... When children can be miserable in their circumstances, but still happy. Now, do you know how you can figure that out? Take them sledding. Take them sledding. There are some kids, and we've seen it at like two or three years old. There are kids, the moment they get cold, snow gets in their gloves. They get their nose rubbed in the snow. They're done. Because they can no longer be happy because they're cold. I'm cold, and therefore, I'm miserable, and I want to go get in the car and go home. And then there's a maturity level that you reach when you're, for us, we've seen it at four and five and six, where you're going down the hill, and you're having fun, and you're cold. Your fingers are cold, and your nose is cold, and your toes are cold, and you really want hot chocolate. But you know what? You don't care. You're miserable externally, but you're having so much fun that the fun overwhelms the misery. Do you you get that? And the point is this, the spiritually immature Christian, the baby Christian, is the one whose circumstances dictate their response, whose circumstances dictate their joy, who's, who's controlled ultimately by whether things are going right or whether things are going wrong. You see this in relationships. Why do marital problems develop in some part in some circumstances it is because i have been doing this to you and you have been responding with this to me and i cannot be content in those circumstances so i am angry we see that in church life we see circumstances where one person is really excited about what's going on and one person has their nose out of joint for some reason. And that person in that circumstance, in that difficulty, is controlled by it. It is reflected in the, how they talk, in how they process everything that happens at that church. It is true in the way we relate to God in the way we relate to our trials and our tribulations. Isn't it so interesting that this book starts, as Kelvin Todd read for us, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Who counts it joy when life is difficult? Well, notice what he says, knowing this. The baby Christian, the immature Christian, is the one who goes through trials and tribulations and is controlled by their circumstances To have no joy, to have no peace, to have only difficulty and trouble. Jesus says the same thing. When you are persecuted, when your circumstances are miserable, rejoice and be exceeding glad. What is that? It's a person who's controlled not by circumstances, not by external factors, not by the difficulties of life, but controlled by something else. I think one of the greatest examples of this is in the book of Habakkuk. And this book is just such a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, reminder to us in a day and age in which we don't know what our future is going to hold. We don't know what our economic future is going to be. We don't know what the, what the prosperity of, of the Christian church, and I'm using that in quotations, is going to be in this country over the next several decades. We have no idea. Well, Habakkuk gives us something wonderful, something so fascinating because that is so much about suffering, that book. The prophet is looking up to God and saying, God, what's going on? Why are we suffering? Why are circumstances so bad? Why is everything going wrong? God, why would you bring the Chaldeans against us? They're wicked. It's this dialogue with God. And listen to where this prophet ends up in chapter three and verse 17. Listen to what he says. Although the fig tree shall not blossom. That was devastation in an agricultural society. Neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Economic wipeout. Economic devastation and catastrophe leading to certain poverty and potentially to starvation. And listen to what the prophet says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. My circumstances will not control my spiritual reality. He closes, the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds' feet and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. Friends, let me pause for a moment and just hold the mirror up to you. How much is your mood daily affected by your circumstances? How much is your joy, I mean your contentment in the Lord, controlled by what is happening externally to you day by day? How much is your spiritual Reality. How much is your spiritual acts of of worship and devotion to God affected by how you are feeling based on external factors and realities? How much are you like that wave that when the wind is blowing this way, you'll go that way? I'm feeling great. My job's good. My relationship seems solid. I'm happy with where I'm at in the church. Everything seems to be okay. My joy is there. And then you know what? I don't like where things are going. I don't like that job situation. I don't like that relationship that I'm dealing with. I don't like the direction that we're taking here at the church. And suddenly, everything becomes sour. I don't have joy. I don't have peace. You see, that person is just like that wave. Just like that wave, driven and tossed, controlled entirely by external circumstances. What James is saying, that kind of person doesn't have a prayer life because they can't connect in to what truly God demands in prayer. You see, there's a natural phenomenon, there's a spiritual pathology, and finally, there's a biblical prescription. Notice what he says here. If any of you lack wisdom, and this is in the context of trials, Are you struggling with what's going on in your life? You can't figure out which way is north and which way is south. You don't know what to do next. He said, do you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given him. But notice verse six, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. You don't want to be like the wave. You don't want to be a waverer. There's one biblical prescription. It's Faith. Faith. So let's ask ourselves, how does faith make us not look like that wave, not be a waver, a doubter? Well, first of all, what is faith? What is faith? Now, this is a real struggle for many when it comes to prayer. We say, I don't know whether I can pray in faith because I don't know whether God's going to do it. I want to distinguish a couple things The first thing is that as we've said often here, you can be absolutely certain you can pray completely in faith when God has given you an unambiguous promise from his word. You can pray in complete faith. Notice that's what James has done here in chapter, in verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And what comes next? and it shall be given him. Do you know that's an unambiguous promise? Some of you remember the message that Rick Flanders preached at Camp Shatek on this passage. How many of you remember that message? Anyone? Yeah, I, I still remember it because it was so powerful. Here's what he simply said. He said, you just need to take that promise. Are you struggling with a decision that you have to make? Then pray and claim that promise completely in faith And then make your decision and trust that God has given you wisdom that you need. You just need to act on it. Trust him and claim it as a promise. It is a promise. And you know, you could go through your Bible and mark up promise after promise after promise after promise. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when God has given you a promise, you can pray in faith and claim it as your own. That's certainly one thing that that James is talking about here. But I want to notice something else in verse 5 that I suspect may be even more germane to our own doubts, to our own waverings in prayer and otherwise. Notice what he says. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given him. What's he telling you? He's not just saying, God will do this. He's saying, this is what God is like. Now pray in faith. You say, help me with this distinction. Here's what I mean. How often does our faith not solely stem from what God will do, but who God is to you? Let me give you an example. How many times have you prayed for something that you were convinced was good? It was good for you. And you couldn't understand why God hasn't given it to you. Why hasn't he given me a partner in life? Why hasn't he given me a happy work relationship or a happy marriage? Why hasn't he given me financial stability? Why hasn't he given me a calling that I can really sink into? Why has he placed me in this circumstance of life that I find miserable right now? And we begin to pray, God, give me what I desire. And friends, there may be certain things that you say, well, I don't know that I can pray in faith because I don't see a promise that God will give this to me. But friends, let's go back to the deeper point. How often do you end up doubting God himself, his character, his goodness to you because he hasn't given you what you think is good? In other words, it's not just about whether we get what we want. It's the attitude that says to God, because you haven't given me what I want and I think is good, I don't know that I can doubt, I don't know that I can trust your good character toward me. I don't know that you love me. I'm not sure that you have my best interest in mind. I'm not sure that I am truly your child. I'm not sure that everything the Bible says about who you are and I am is correct. You see, I'm convinced that one of the greatest doubts that we go through is not just about whether God will do something in the future, but whether his failure to do it right now is evidence that his character is not what we can trust. Do you see what James says? He says, I'm not just telling you that God is going to do it just because he's going to do it. I'm telling you this is who God is. God is someone who gives to everyone liberally without any stinginess. He does not abrade. He does not reject. He does not criticize. God is a giving God, so trust him. And the simple point is this. If you don't want to be like that wave of the sea directed by all of your circumstances, you're going to have to get really confident about who God is and about who you are. say, what do you mean? I mean this. Scripture over and over again uh, gives you applicational truth only after he has given you doctrinal truth. Before God tells you what to do, he tells you who he is and who you are. And he says, this is your foundation. This is what I've called you to do. And therefore, walk in it. Before exhortation becomes education, before he gives you the practice, he gives you the principles by which he relates to you. Now, What this means is that when I am convinced completely in who God is to me, I'm completely convinced in his character. I'm not wrestling in my mind about whether God is for me or against me. I'm not wrestling in my mind about whether he's good or he's not good. I'm not wrestling in my mind about whether he will conform me to the image of his son. I'm not wrestling in my mind about whether he has my best interests at heart. When I am completely convinced I am single-minded in that. What does it do? What it does is it ensures that I have all the stability that I'll ever need. You see, there's another picture that we, Tabitha and I, saw in Cabo. It was not just of those crashing waves. It was what those waves were crashing against. Granite Rock formations that have been there for who knows how many years. Over and over, the waves have crashed and crashed and crashed and crashed. And that rock sits there completely unmoved. Why? Because it is connected to an underground formation that has all the stability that it will ever need. And that is the character of God to us in Jesus Christ. The character of God is such that by faith you connect to God is like this. He is good. He is for me in Christ. He is eternally on my side. He will only turn all things together for good to those who love them. He always will make me to thrive in joy in my current circumstances, if I will allow him. When you connect to those bedrock truths about who God is, you will never be wavering. You'll never be controlled by your circumstances. You'll rejoice when you're persecuted. You'll count it all joy when you go through difficulty. The worst circumstances of your life will be those that ground your faith, not undermine it. Because ultimately, you're not, controlled by your circumstances you're you're connected to the bedrock that will never move no matter what the circumstances are and that means one thing, what is the biblical prescription how do we grow in this kind of faith, it's simple know God know God, know his character in Isaiah chapter 50 when God is giving a picture of hope to his people He sends his messenger to say, get up into the high mountain and tell my people, behold your God. And if you're a waverer tonight, the message that God has for you tonight is behold your God. What's he like? Who is he for you in Christ? What has he done for you? How has his love been revealed to you? What promises does he give you in the word that when you drop to your knees tonight or tomorrow morning for your prayer session, you are going to stand resolutely on no matter what circumstances you're facing in your life, no matter what trials, no matter what tribulations and difficulties you have. And do you know that will make all the difference in your prayer life? And it will make all the difference in the way you relate to the circumstances of your life You know, I see this in my own children. Why is it that Emma, who is one years old, will cling to me? And when you come and try to take her, she'll give you a stink eye of all stink eyes and say, no thanks. I'm going to stay with Daddy. It's because she knows me. She doesn't know you very well, maybe. And in the same way, when we as the children of God by faith know God, we have beheld him, we have spent time with him, we know what his characteristics are as as they are described for us in his word, and we are not wavering them for a moment. We are utterly convinced of the character of God toward us. Do you know what we'll do? We'll cling to him. And in the circumstances of life, we will allow him to control us, not the circumstances of our life. I don't have a really practical application for you tonight. I don't have three steps that you need to take to get a better prayer life. I don't. I simply have this. Get to know God. Study who he is in the Bible. Understand what his character is. Identify his promises. If you want to start, start with Romans 8. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? embrace what the gospel says to you about who Christ is and what he's done for you. And then when all the circumstances crash over your life this week, don't look at them. Don't allow them to control you. Ground yourself in who God is and what he said to you he is. And pray in faith that he is going to do exactly what he has said for you. And when that's the case, friends, You don't need to worry about the mirror of your life being held up to you and you looking like that wave that is utterly controlled by the forces around it. Your mirror can look like the rock, someone who is connected to the rock of ages and who always can stand resolutely, joyfully, peacefully, connected to all the goodness, the character of God and who he is for us. In Christ Jesus.